Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. This podcast is the third in a series of 16 lessons that we did on the seven churches from the book of Revelation. So this week, we'll take a second look at the city of Sardis. Sardis was one of the great cities of the ancient world and of Asia Minor. Today's lesson will look at the main goddess of the city, Kibla. That's spelled C-Y-B-E-L-E. And Kibla is a big Mother Earth goddess. Now, all the cities that John writes to have primary gods or goddesses of that city. And John, both in Revelation and the Gospel of John, because that's written from Ephesus, goes head to head with these gods. So the theme of doing battles with the local gods will come up over and over and over throughout this study. Now, I'll mention again, when this study was originally presented, it was done with PowerPoint slides and pictures. So you can find the same lesson on YouTube. So if there's something we're talking about that there's a picture involved, it may be helpful to go find the picture on YouTube because that will help you solidify and make concrete some of these ideas that are going on at the city of Sardis. So we hope you enjoy the second lesson on the city of Sardis. All right, so last week we had our introduction to Sardis. And one of the questions that came up last week, and then Bonnie asked me about it again this week, is why did I start with Sardis? Why start? Why not start with Ephesus, which is at the beginning of the list? So part of the reason is, is that I'm asking most of you, if you've studied Revelation, you've not studied Revelation in the sense that of looking at the context and the history of the city and then trying to see what that first century people would hear. So this this might be a new way to study Revelation. And Sardis is probably the most vivid when it comes to the historical context or the context of what's there that meets the letter. So it's a great place for an introductory way to see what John is doing and how he's connecting because he does this in every single city. Now, if we started with Ephesus, the, the connections are more abstract, and you'd have to do more mental gymnastics than Sardis, which is a lot of pictures. So by the time we get to Ephesus, you'll have no problem seeing how John's connecting it. But anyways, that's why we started with Sardis and not Ephesus. So let's do a couple things here. I wanted to offer up some resources, at least there's two resources that I've re relied upon regularly besides the trip that I took to Turkey. So that was, you can always go on a study tour. That's helpful. But then what do you do when you get back, right? So you need some resources. So the first one is, and I put these on the top of your handout, the books, oddly enough, are titled almost exactly the same way. This one, The Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia, this was written in 1904 uh, by a British fellow, Ramsey. In 1904, one of, the, one of the things about this book is that in 1904, they had not done much of the excavation. So, for instance, when he finishes with his letter to Sardis, he makes a comment, well, they were a dead church. Well, we saw last week that as they excavated the city, 
and I'll show you again today when we look at the goddess Kibola, they did not die. This was not a dead church. They blossomed. It was a thriving community. So part of what happens with archaeology is as we uncover things, it often changes something that, you know, we may have thought had been our understanding, right? Because archaeology often does that. So anyways, this is a good book, but you have to realize that written in 1904, he's missing a lot of the archaeology. Then you have a second book. This one's by Colin Hemmer. And you'll notice it's titled almost exactly the same way, The Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia, and then the, the second part, In Their Local Setting. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're just going to that local setting to say, what would those first hearers of John's letter hear as Revelation is being read aloud in their house church? So those are two. Just so you know, Colin Hemmer is a really good book, um, but he's an academic. And sometimes when academics, they'll put, a, they'll put a sentence in Latin or put a sentence in Greek or Hebrew, and then they don't translate it for you. So they assume that everybody reading his book can read Latin, Greek, and Hebrew without any translations. So it's the one downfall to that book is if you, if you go to read it, you'll, be, you'll constantly be frustrated by the fact that he doesn't translate into English some simple sentences. Okay. Those are two resources. All right, so let's do a quick review. This is always good to reorient mentally where we're going in the world. And it's really good when we think about the how Christianity leaves Israel and it goes out into the world. It, it really incubates in a very small part of the world. And then it just obviously flows out from there. Okay. Here's the Mediterranean. Africa is down to the south. So there's Egypt, the continent of Africa to the south. If we go northwest, you get the boot of Italy. And that's, of course, the headquarters of the Roman Empire at the time that John is writing. And that's Rome. Then you have the city of Athens right there in the center. And, of course, way off on the east side, the eastern portion of the Roman Empire is where the good news of God's reign begins. So Jesus and his disciples up in Galilee, eventually down to Jerusalem. Then as the Holy Spirit goes out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and off to the ends of the earth. And to them, the ends of the earth was all the way over here in a place called that we call Turkey, modern day Turkey. So, so much of your New Testament is written by people in Turkey, to people in Turkey, and written by people who are from Turkey. So, you, it's really important that we recognize the context here. All right, let's go a little bit closer. Same thing. The, the gospel goes in a northwesterly direction to a place where we're at right now, what we're studying, called Asia Minor. And... As we look at every one of these cities, you know, we tend to think, you know, if you look at a map of the United States and you say, hey, look, uh, you know, New York City on this map looks really close to West Virginia or or New York City looks really close to Lancaster, PA. They must have exactly the same culture. Well, if you're from Brooklyn and you're being compared to West Virginia culture, you're not going to be happy. 
And that's exactly these cities have such different cultures that come from their history that it's it's pretty remarkable when you see the nuances in John's letter. Same with Paul. Paul does the same thing. Okay, Asia Minor, it goes off in this direction. And of course, where we're looking is this little section of Asia Minor, Western Turkey, and that's where our cities of Sardis is. So we go a little bit closer. They're all connected by valleys, and so it makes travel there accessible. Now, John lived down in the city of Ephesus. Many of you have been there. We'll, we'll talk Ephesus in a few weeks. But John is living in Ephesus. That's kind of the headquarters of this, of this, his church. And then he writes, and notice this is the, in, in chapter one of Revelation, it says, write this to the churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's the order that you see in your Bible. And you can see the order makes a, a clockwise circle all connected by a road. So he's not just lobbing names of cities out there randomly. They're actually in, he's, he's moving in a particular order. Okay, let's go now closer to Sardis, because we have to notice those details about Sardis. Sardis is in what's called the Hermes River Valley. It makes very fertile valley today and back then, one, uh, grapes. Today, grapes for raisin, back then probably raisin and lots of wine, as we'll see today when they celebrate Mardi Gras or spring break there in Sardis. Um, okay, last week I mentioned up here, just to the north of the Hermes River Valley are those tumulus, burial mounds. So that whole section that looks tan is where you find all the burial mounds. And then, of course, to the south of Sardis, you have the Tumulus Mountains. And Sardis, of course, sits right on the edge of the Tumulus Mountains and the Hermes River Valley. Let's go closer. That, of course, is a picture of the Hermes River Valley, and you can tell how fertile it is. There's some ancient ruins there in the foreground. That's the gymnasium of Sardis. Okay, now what we're going to do, what I'd like to do is read through now the entire letter to Sardis. So if you have your Bible and you want to open it up to Revelation 3, and we'll read Revelation 3, 1 through 6, which is the entire letter to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll talk about that today. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Okay, so that's the entire letter of Revel of Revelation to in Revelation to Sardis, and of course we'll finish up on some of these um, references today. Soiled clothes, walking in white, Book of Life. We'll attempt to at least look at some cultural context. And, you know, I was telling Bonnie this week, she asked me what I was going to teach about. And there's some things in with the goddess Kibbola that are fairly disgusting. And uh, so we have to we have to broach them. And I know it's Sunday morning, so I apologize. And I don't want to I don't think I'll offend anybody. But if I do, I apologize ahead of time and just pray for me that I'll have the right words um, to talk about the Kibbola cult because it's not nice. Now, as we've mentioned, we're talking text to context, meaning we're going to take the Old Testament. At least this is what John's doing. He takes verses from the Old Testament. He's going to connect them to the cultural and historical context of the city. And by doing that, he brings the Spirit of God that's in those words, and he connects them into the culture, and they wake up. They, see, they start to see what John is talking about. So it's really important that we go into, again, more cultural, historical context. And as I mentioned at the top, this is why I chose Sardis first, because visually it's very easy to see, to see that. Okay, let's do a review of last week. So last week we looked at this Acropolis. That was one of the main things, or it is one of the main things, at Sardis. They used to have the king's palace up on that Acropolis, um, stands about 1,500 feet to 2,000 feet above the valley floor. And of course, in 17 AD, a massive earthquake melted that Acropolis into what you see today. So thousand, the Acropolis, in a moment, turned into the Necropolis. It turned into a cemetery as it killed thousands of people. This is the other prominent feature of the city, the necropolis. That's the city of the dead. And we talked last week about their obsession with the death, resurrection, the afterlife. So the necropolis is a prominent feature at Sardis as well. So here's a picture of we're walking down from the acropolis. Here is the necropolis off in the distance and the polis the lower polis of Sardis down here in the valley. And you can see just from that shot how high up we are, and we weren't even halfway up. So um, I'll show you some pictures later from the top of the Acropolis. But uh, that just gives you the vantage point of those two high peaks that sat on either side of Sardis. Now, we noted last week Sardis had the obsession with death, resurrection, renewal, and the afterlife. So, for instance, you have the necropolis, the city of the dead, very prominent part of their city. The second thing, and this is what we'll talk today, the goddess of the city was called Kibbola, and she's a Mother Earth goddess who is said to be able to resurrect people. So, that's, you'll see how that fits in, but she's a goddess of resurrection you have those ancient burial mounds that I mentioned. We looked at those last week. You don't, you find them in no other cities um, in Asia Minor. You have to go down to Egypt before you find something like that again. And then um, 
Then we talked last week, too, about the Acropolis versus the Necropolis. And this is where scholars believe when John says you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, is he's talking about the inability after the, the earthquake for people to tell the Acropolis from the Necropolis. So let's take a look. That right there is the Acropolis. And if we turn around, that's the Necropolis. So you can hear John's words. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. From a distance, you could very easily be confused about which mountain you're looking at. So that's just part of the culture and what's there on the ground for Sardis. All right, that was last week. We also talked about this Acropolis stood so tall, everybody thought it was, you could not topple that Acropolis because it was so steep. There's even a proverbial saying, to do the impossible is to take the Acropolis of Sardis. That comes out of that culture. Now, we noted, though, that twice in its history, it fell very quickly. So the first time, 547 BC, we have a king named Croesus. Croesus at the time, and Sardis, was the wealthiest city in the world. Rich as Croesus. That's what you might say, rich as Croesus, about Warren Buffett or one of the other billionaires that's top, at the top of our list today. It just means they have an unbelievable amount of wealth. King Croesus was sitting at the top of his Acropolis and thought nobody would be able to take him. King Cyrus, the Persian king, was down in the valley. And of course, Cyrus is laying siege to the Acropolis at Sardis. Well, what happened? You get a smart Persian named Heroades, and he recognizes there's a fault in the the Acropolis, and they're not guarding it. So that's kind of key. They let their guard down. And in the middle of the night, Heroades led a band of whatever kind of special forces you want up, and, the, and Sardis fell in the middle of the night. So the entire kingdom of Lydia was demolished overnight because they got lax. Now you think, if that happens once in your history, that you would wake up and pay attention. Well, lo and behold... 300 years later, you have two different people, one of them, Achaeus, who is a general. He was a general of the kingdom of Pergamum. We'll be in Pergamum next week, God willing. And he's at the top of the Acropolis. There's the king Antiochus, who's also a Greek. He just wants to expand his uh, empire. He's down in the valley, and he's laying siege now. Well, this time, you get another soldier, Lagarus. Lagarus was a soldier from Crete. He recognizes there's a part on the wall that they're not guarding. They figure out a way to get up there. And in the middle of the night, Sardis falls. So Sardis has a reputation of thinking that nobody can defeat them. And of course, that's false. Now you can hear John's words, wake up. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And that's right out of that Sardis history. If you wanted to, you could even um, put the earthquake of 17 AD in there, because the earthquake of 17 AD happened in the middle of the night. So in an instant, in the middle of the night, the city fell. 
Okay. That's why you can see the the vividness of the history of Sardis and what John is doing to pull into that letter. All right, so that was all last week. Now I want to tackle some things for this week. So that was all review. This week, in the beginning of the letter, and John uses this reference multiple times in the book of Revelation, so you have to ask, why is that such a significant reference? He mentions the one who holds the seven stars. Now, he also mentions it's either the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirits of God. And that one probably goes back to Zechariah. But I want to show culturally some thoughts about this idea of the seven stars. The question that we'd be asking ourselves is, who holds the seven stars? And what does that mean to hold the seven stars? In the ancient time, and what seems to be much of this thinking is centered around a city in Turkey called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is where Paul is from. So Paul is born into a city that's obsessed with the cosmos and who can get you to the stars. So here was their idea. The idea was we live on Earth. The heavenly realm is up there on the, it looked like to them, it was a fixed dome up in the sky. And the Milky Way, they said, was when people die, they ascend up to the Milky Way and become a star in the sky. They call it, today we call it, astral immortality. It's where you go in the afterlife. You become a star in the heaven. So they look up and say, those are where all the people go when they die. Now, there's a problem, though, because the journey to get to that, the stars up in the heaven, is a perilous journey because there's seven wandering stars in between. There's seven levels that you have to move through. So they said, the seven celestial bodies, how are you going to navigate getting to that, to your place up in the, up in the heavens? Well, what are the seven celestial bodies? Well, you have the sun, the moon, then you have Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. Now, for those of you who who like the, the study of the planets or the stars, it's probably not in the order that you'd put them in, but let me show you why I used that order. So, the question is, is what God can get you in the afterlife through those seven bodies or the seven stars into the celestial heaven? And so, each God would claim to have the power to move you through the seven stars. So, when John writes, he's the one who holds the seven stars, there's culturally something about the afterlife. Who's going to navigate you through the afterlife? But let me show you something. We did this before when we talked about the god Mithra, because he also claimed to hold the seven stars. This time, they're, they're developing a seven-day week. So we're used to having seven days a week. They come up with seven days of the week, and then they name the days after each one of those celestial bodies. So, for instance, you had a day for the sun, Sunday. You had a moon day. You had a Mars day, Mercury day, Jupiter day, 
Venus Day, and then, of course, Saturn Day. Now, if you take the Latin names, or the, the Greek and the Latin names that are down there in the Mediterranean, you move them over to our ancestry, which tends to be Northern European, and you get the Germanic names that we now know today. So, for instance, Sunday is Sunday. We didn't change the idea, or we didn't change the name of the day. Monday is Moon Day, of course. And then here's where it gets a little bit more confusing. In the Germanic language, the god that's associated with Mars is called Tu, T-I-W. So which day is Tuesday? Well, Tuesday is Tuesday. So that's named after the god Tu, which is Mars. Then you get Woden. Woden is Mercury. So Woden's Day, that's Wednesday. Then you get Thor, right? Everyone knows Thor. He's Jupiter. And Thor's Day is Thursday. So then we get, this is one of my favorite, Venus is a, it's the fertility goddess, Venus, Fridge. So Fridge Day is what we call Friday. And then, of course, you get Saturday. So, you know, sometimes we think that these uh, cultural stuff from the Bible is really far away from us, but obviously we're still holding on to many of the same things and we don't even know it. Now, one thing to note is that the Bible never names days. In Hebrew culture and biblically, you don't name your days, you count them. The women were at the grave on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. Jesus goes to a wedding on the third day of the week. That's Tuesday. That's the traditional day for weddings in Israel. So they just count the days. The sixth day, of course, is Friday and then seventh day, the Sabbath day. Anyways, that's just more trivia than it is Sardis, but I just wanted to give you the idea that those seven stars held vital importance when it came to the afterlife. So, for instance, if you want to turn back and if you want to look in your Bible, Revelation 1.16, so it's just two chapters back, but you can see how even John is speaking, not specifically to Sardis in this case, but to everybody now, that as he looks up into heaven, he sees this vision of one like the Son of Man who's reigning on the throne. And then it says this, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. And right there, he speaks culturally to the idea of who can get you to heaven is basically what they're asking. And John is saying, well, that's Jesus. And he's now got to do battle with every other God that's that's in existence out there and every other way of believing about the cosmos. So in that little sentence, it speaks a lot to their culture. Now, next week we'll be in Pergamum, God willing, and I'll show you how important this next little sentence in Revelation 1.16 is. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. In the ancient times, or when John's writing, the double-edged sword is a Roman sword. Very important. The, the, the Middle Eastern sword was like a big scimitar, a long blade, single-bladed. So when he speaks sharp double-edged sword, every one of them pictures a Roman soldier walking down the street with that sword. And that's going to play big in Pergamum next week. I just want to point that out because it's such an it's important cultural piece. Okay, 
So the seven stars, who's able to get you to heaven? And in one little sentence, John says, no, 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 it's not Kibbola who controls the seven stars. It's not Mithra, Mithras who controls the seven stars. It's Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now we're going to get to the difficult part. This is the temple to Kibbola. Now, it'll drive you mad if you've ever studied some of the Greek gods, how they're constantly intermingling. And depending on the location of whoever's writing or the people that are worshiping, they often will stick in other elements from other gods or goddesses. Every culture, as they develop, will borrow different things from different gods or goddesses. In this case, technically, that temple is not only Kibla, but it's Kibla Artemis. That's actually fairly important because Kibla comes from the east. In the, uh, Babylon, she's called Kubaba. So Kibla comes from the east. As she w came east, she met Artemis. Artemis comes from Greece. Diana, we call her in Ephesus, but Artemis is in Ephesus. And when those two meet, it turns into a pretty disgusting cult. You also get some ideas from Dionysus. And if you read the links that I put on your page, uh, on the bottom of page two, I put some links to read. If you wanted to read more, you'll see that Dionysus fits into a lot of these. So Dionysus is a, from an, he's the god of wine. And of course, anywhere you get a lot of wine, you know where things are going to end up. So it's Kibla Artemis, and this is her temple. Now, let me show, take that away. It is so difficult for those of you who've traveled maybe to this temple or to any of the temples in, there in the east. It's very difficult to express how big that place is. Harvard puts the overall height at 110 feet, so 10 stories. That's a huge temple. So let me show you a couple pictures. This is a group of, you know, there's 50 of us, and you can see the size of those columns that are going up. We're standing, if I back up the slide, we're standing almost at the very back, the closest to the camera we can be, and we're looking at the altar so straight ahead of us is an altar, and of course that altar is lined up with the necropolis in the background. Because as you move from the Acropolis to the necropolis, you move through the Kibbola temple. So it's huge, very hard in these photos to show exactly how big it is. This is a drawing, uh, one of the archaeologists from Cornell but you can see how he references the people in that and how small they are compared to the size of that temple. It was massive. This is a big deal. Now, we'll talk temples a little bit later, what they all represent. And... But anyways, hopefully that'll give you a little bit, of, little bit of an idea of just how big this place is. Okay, here's the altar to Kibbeleh. They're trying to rebuild it, and I've if you, look, if you go to Harvard's website on Sardis, you'll see that they've rebuilt a lot more of this in the past few years. If you look at the land right behind that altar, you see a bunch of divots. They look like divots in the ground. Those are all burial uh, chambers as the ground has collapsed into where they had the burial chamber. 
And that, of course, is the necropolis. Let me show you. Here's another one looking straight down the center of that through the altar up to the necropolis. And then let me show you. You can see the guy in the yellow. I mean, that's a normal six-foot guy standing next to two columns. Those columns are massive. Uh, and that's looking up at the Acropolis, 180 degrees. Okay, so let's talk Kibbola a little bit. Kibbola, or Kibbola Artemis, or as they say in uh, Babylon, Kubaba. So she goes by an, a number of different names. She's a Mother Earth goddess. So just about every culture has a Mother Earth goddess. Somebody who's giving birth to everything that we see, or who has the power to give birth. So women who want to get pregnant make offerings to Kibbola. Women who are pregnant, because the, the death rate of, in childbirth was so high, they would make offerings to Kibbola. So, very important. She's Mother Earth Goddess. She's also considered the Mother of the Gods. So she's somehow written in that she's given birth to different gods. And then, at one point in one of her myths, she resurrected her grandson, Addis. Now, here's the part, and I apologize, but it leads into the story of why we have to know this about Sardis. You know, all of these gods are just, it's disgusting, the way that they weave these stories in about how these gods get there, or anything about them. It's really a projection of all the human, the, the disgusting human behaviors up into the goddesses and gods that they see as controlling. So anyways, Addis really wanted recognition from Kibbola. This is the myth, of course. Well, he didn't feel that he got it, and he was so upset that he uh, castrated himself. The wound from the self-castration, he died. Kibbola was so moved by his offering that she raised him back to life. So as we'll see in a minute, if you're a priest of Kibbola, you want to be just like Addis. Because that's the promise of resurrection, and you can see where that's going. It's not going to end well. That's part of this Kibbola story here in Sardis. So when we talk about the idea of movement from life to death, this picture is taken from the Acropolis. Here's the Necropolis off in the distance. And right down here in the center of that picture, perfectly placed, is the, the temple to Kibbola. And that's not a mistake of why they did it that way. When we get to Sardis, you can imagine, what if you're a disciple of Jesus and someone says, hey, we need some help in Sardis. Oh, yeah, what's there? Well, the, Kibble, the famous Kibbola Artemis cult each year has their festival. Tell me about it. Well, the priests of Kibbola are the, called the Gali priests. I put a link that if you want to read about the Gali priests, Kibbola makes it as far as Rome, so the Gali priests are also in Rome. But the Gali priests are the devoted adherents to Kibbola, and they themselves, and this is the part again, I apologize for uh, the language, but they castrate themselves, just like Addis did, 
because they want to receive the blessing of resurrection just like Addis did. So you can't be a Gali priest if you haven't been emasculated. They're all eunuchs. And many of them did it themselves as part of their devotion to Kibbalah. So every year, sometime around the end of March to the beginning of April, this is, I've, I've seen two different dates, April 1st to April 4th, about that time, you would have a huge festival to Kibbalah. They would have a giant procession from the, from the city center out to this temple, and it would be led, of course, by those Gali priests and anyone who wants to become a Gali priest. You also have, in the crowd, in the procession, you're going to have both men and women. And this same thing happens over in Ephesus. The women, this is like, and I'm not kidding, it's a little bit like um, Mardi Gras or Spring Break, where women will go through the year and they'll maintain their behavior. And suddenly they go to Mardi Gras or they go to Spring Break and their behavior gets thrown out the window anything decent, that's exactly what would happen here. The women who wanted to marry would, in during the Kibbalah festival, would seek a male sexual partner that she didn't even know who it was. You think, well, what the heck, how, what's that doing you any good? I don't know, that's just the way they celebrated it. The men in the crowd would s practice self-flagellation. They would be dressed in all white. White is universally the symbol of purity. And as they're moving in this procession, the men would cut themselves with knives, swords, rocks. And the blood, as the blood fell onto your white clothes, was the blessing of the goddess. You can imagine the crowd on the side is cheering everybody on. Right, The crowd is trying to get everybody whipped up into a frenzy, just like at Mardi Gras, to do things that are way outside your norm. You have to be in a state of ecstasy, in a way, to, to do that. So the crowd is cheering them on. Let me. I want to show you this, this idea of self-flagellation, of pulling blood out in honor of a deity. Let me show you a couple places where you can find it. The first one, don't turn there in your Bible because we don't have time. First Kings 18, this is where Elijah is doing battle with the Baal prophets. So Elijah um, gets a bunch of the Baal prophets. They go up on Mount Carmel and he begins to taunt them. So verse 27 says, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Of course, speaking of, of Baal. So what do the Baal prophets do? Well, they shouted louder and then watch this. They slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. As if getting the blood to flow is going to appease somehow the god. And this is very common, particularly among Eastern religions. So I just want to show you, 
the the idea of pulling blood out during a procession doesn't sound normal to us today. But as you go to the East, and particularly the ancient East, you find these as regular occurrences. By the way, there's a festival every year in the Muslim culture. This is Shia Muslims. That's called Ashura. Now, I'm not going to show you any pictures, but if you Google Ashura and you look at the Google images, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Because the festival to Ashura, all the men, all dressed in white, they come out with big blades, machetes, knives, and they cut the top of their head to get the blood flowing. And the crowds are going nuts. You know, I mean, guys, I'm sure the guys can back me up on this. If you get a group of men together and you say, hey, we're going to have a procession. Oh, yeah. What's the goal? The goal is to see who can bleed the most. Oh, yeah. Watch this. Right. And next thing you know, you have a competition between men of who can cut themselves the deepest or the most or whatever, just to see, because that's how men are. They just compete whenever they're together. So anyways, so this is something that's still happening today. If you wanted to read more about that festival, you can read about it in the Muslim world. This is one final point, and I, and I apologize to go back to this topic, but the idea of eunuchs and self-castration obviously just seems absolutely so out of the norm to us. Well, the Council of Nicaea, everybody knows the Council of Nicaea. Everyone knows the Nicaean Creed. The Council of Nicaea happened in 325 AD, so 200 years after, yeah, 225 years after John's writing. And the Council of Nicaea is trying to bring some uh, rules or some semblance to this Christianity that now, because because now the, the emperor is a Christian, and when they wrote out their documents, they came up with a list of 20 rules or what we call canons. And I just want you to notice the very first rule. So it's the number one rule for priests. So it says, this says, the council promulgated 20 new church laws called canons. Number one is a prohibition of self-castration for clergy. Now, those, that's the Christian church. But you can see what happens in, the, in those regions where all of the people are coming from different faiths with different practices, and they're moving into Christianity, and they're bringing along with them all of their same customs, thinking that that's going to somehow move them to in a, a better promise of resurrection or something like that. So it, we're not that far away from it in the Council of Nicaea. Enough that you had to make a rule, and that's, you know, for if you've been in the military or run a large organization, you know that if you're making a rule, it's because there's a problem. And clearly, the number one rule was a problem there during that time. Now, with that said, imagine that this takes place every year in your city. Let's go back to Revelation 3, verses 4 through 6, where John writes this. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, how do you soil your clothes when you live in Sardis? 
well, if you take play, if you take part of that Kibbola procession every year, or anything surrounding Kibbola, your soil, your clothes are going to be soiled, whether that's literally or figuratively. Notice the next sentence: "They will walk with me dressed in white." Well, that's exactly what the processions did in for Kibbola. But now John's saying, no, no, no. If you didn't soil your clothes, you'll have a procession, but it's going to be with Jesus now. For those people are worthy. Verse 5. The one who is victorious, like them, will be dressed in white. Now, we could say, hey, that's a Kibbola reference. That's a reference to that procession there that takes place in Sardis. True. Ramsey also thinks that it's a it's a reference to the Roman triumph. So as the Caesar would come back from a victory, because notice it says the one who's victorious will be dressed in white, that as the Romans came back from conquering a territory, they would have a, a, a triumph procession. And all the Romans would be dressed in white for this triumph procession. So it's probably multiple references, uh, both to... Kibbola and the Roman Empire. Then he says this, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Now, the key reference to that, because we're talking Old Testament to the new to this context, is you can read it on your own, but it's Exodus 32, 32. Now, Exodus 32, they had just gotten done worshiping a false god, the golden calf. It's like the worst thing you could do that the Israelites did, Moses is begging that, hey, God, because you know me, don't take my name out of your book. And that's the first reference we get to our names being written in a book of life. So that is most likely alluding back to Exodus 32. So that is Kibbalah, and it's a disgusting everything that Christianity and Judaism isn't or wasn't. And you can see how many people in the first century, before Christianity got there, were attracted to the to Judaism that were in all these towns because it held a moral standard. And we'll see as we move into some of these other cities, some of the other disgusting pagan cults and how people who didn't want to live that way would move to something that at least had a moral standard to it. Last thing, was it a dead church? Because we've got to keep going back to that. Did Sardis die dead? Well, so I mentioned this last week. This is a die vat right in the town square. And the one that the, the one on your right has been flipped upside down and is a somebody had inscribed a testimony to Kibbola that somehow Kibbalah healed them or somehow Kibbalah did something. And those Christians took that stone, chiseled out what they could, flipped it over and put a cross on it. And it tells you exactly what they think of that Kibbalah. And boldly offending all of your neighbors who may have been adherents to Kibbalah or at least didn't want to upset the God. Okay, that was last week, but let me show you this. If we go back to that Kibbola temple, I want you to notice this building that's sitting right there. That is a church. 
Now, there's actually two churches built there. There's an early one from the 4th century, which is the 300s. Then there's a later one from the late 500s. But look what the Christians did. They took a church and they put it right in the temple of that disgusting goddess. And now, was Kibbola out of favor at the time? Maybe. But at least it tells you they went where the people were suffering to offer them something that was different than Kibbola. And maybe someone showed up at that Kibbola temple and someone over here at the church said, hey, can I pray for you? There's a different way. Kibbola isn't the one to worship. You, you, can, you get the point. That's bold. In fact, what's, it's hard to tell on that. That church is actually inside what's called the Timonos. The Timonos is the sacred space of, of Kibbola. They put it right inside there. It's pretty amazing to find that church. But that's how bold those Christians were. Let me show you a different picture of it right there. So there's actually two churches. So one was built right on top of each other. And I just think that's so cool that they didn't let that goddess get in their way to go out and tell the truth about Jesus. In fact, they just walked right in and put it inside their that temple. That is a wrap-up of Sardis. Next week, God willing, we will be at Pergamum. And we'll go through the whole thing with all the gods. Pergamum is the one where he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So we'll ask the question, who's John referring to when he says Satan has his throne? And there's about 10 different candidates. So, okay, let me stop the sharing. Does anybody have any questions about the second half of Sardis? Besides... How disgusting it is. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree today for this lesson. Don't forget to go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month to highlight videos and to provide you with a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your biblical studies. Our prayer at Fig Tree Ministries is that the more you understand the cultural and historical context that surrounds the words of the Bible, the deeper that you can take God's Word and impart it into your life.